following podcast is sponsored by the new Hood College Gear Shop. The Gear Shop replaces the old Hood College bookstore. Most of us remember the bookstore as just a place where we bought or rented books. Well, that's not the case anymore. The Hood College Gear Shop is a great place to buy all kinds of things. Need some Hood branded merch? You'll find hoodies and t-shirts, hats and scarves, sweats and socks, mugs and cups, They even have Hood-branded blankets. Low on shampoo or soap? They have you covered. Bad breath before class? Buy some gum or Tic Tacs. Need a pen, highlighter, or notebook? The gear shop has tons. Does your roommate have a dog? Buy them a Hood College leash or collar. Need some Advil or Tums? The gear shop has your back. Need a last-minute birthday gift for your best friend? You'll find plenty of options. What I'm saying is the Hood College Gear Shop has you covered for all your gifts, school, snack, and blazer branded clothing needs. So next time you're in WIT, stop in and browse around. Mention my name, Ellie Cooper, and the name of this podcast, Think Pink, to receive 10% off your purchase of any Hood branded merch. But listen to the show first. Hello, and welcome to Think Pink, a brand new podcast where I talk about all things that emanate pink. Whether that be something that's considered feminine or otherwise, we'll be covering it all. I'm your host, Ellie Cooper, and I'm looking forward to sharing my interests with you and my guests. The point of this podcast is not to exclude the guys, but instead include every person that loves all things feminine. I'm going to break down how these things became gendered and how that label affects how we react to them today. While this podcast totally serves me more than you, I hope you can find some elements that are relatable and interesting to you. Maybe you come to find out you're more feminine than you realized. And with that, let's think pink. Welcome back to Think Pink. This is episode three. For this episode, I've decided to take a step back. I feel like this should have been my initial first episode's topic. Because today, I would like to cover the four waves of feminism, um, specifically in the U.S. Feminism as we know it today is just a reform construct of previous constructs, if that makes any sense. So before I go any further and continue to just drone on and on about definitions and things, I would also like to note that this is the first one that will not feature a musical artist, because somehow I just managed to do that twice in a row. So for this episode, I will first get a little textbooky, I guess, uh, with some definitions and brief timeline of the very first appearances of feminism in history. Then I want to break down the different waves of feminism and how we identify them now. Then we'll go into the fourth wave, which is our current wave or phase. And then I want to talk about some people throughout the different waves of feminism. I'll bring in like maybe one or two significant people just to give it that like profile feel because I don't want it to, again, just sound like I'm reading from a textbook and I don't really want it to sound like I'm reading from someone's biography either. I just want to relate the idea to the person because that person had that same idea, if that makes sense. This may sound like a boring episode, but it's very important for the foundation of feminism and it's important to acknowledge because it's part of our history as a country and learning your history is important. So I think we should get into the episode. (laughs) So I'm not going to pull up 
Webster's Dictionary or Wikipedia, but I do have um, Britannica. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing their name correctly, but I use them as a source sometimes in papers, so I trust them. (laughs) They define feminism as the belief in social, economic, and political equality of the sexes. Although largely originating in the West, feminism is manifested worldwide and is represented by various institutions committed to activity on behalf of women's rights and interests. For most of recorded history, only isolated voices spoke out against the inferior status of women, presaging the arguments to come. In late 14th and early 15th century France, the first feminist philosopher, Christine de Pisson, challenged prevailing attitudes towards women with a bold call for female education. Her mantle was taken up later in the century by Laura Crita, a 15th century Venetian woman who published Apostle Familiars, a volume of letters dealing with a panoply of women's complaints, from denial of education and marital oppression to the frivolity of women's attire. Female intellectuals of the Enlightenment period were quick to point out that this lack of inclusivity and the limited scope of formist rhetoric. Olympie de Gois, a noted playwright, published Declaration, declaring women to not be only man's equal, but his partner. The following year, Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, the seminal English-language feminist work, was published in England, challenging the notion that women exist only to please men. She proposed that women and men be given equal opportunities in education, work, and politics. Women, she wrote, are as naturally rational as men. If they are silly, it is only because society trains them to be irrelevant. Transitioning to the suffragette movement, the same article states, quote, These debates and discussions surrounding feminism culminated in the first women's rights convention, held in July 1848 in the small town of Seneca Falls, New York. It was a spur-of-the-moment idea that sprang up during a social gathering of Lucretia Mott, a Quaker preacher and veteran social activist. Martha Wright, Mott's sister, Mary Ann McClintock, Jane Hunt, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the wife of an abolitionist and the only non-Quaker in the group. The convention was planned with five days' notice, publicized only by a small, unsigned advertisement in a local paper. Stanton drew up the Declaration of Sentiments that guided the Seneca Falls Convention using the Declaration of Independence as her guide to proclaim that all men and women had been created equal. She drafted 11 resolutions, including the most radical demand, the right to vote. With Frederick Douglass, a former slave, arguing eloquently on their behalf, all 11 resolutions passed, and Ma even won approval of a final declaration, quote, for the overthrowing of the monopoly of the pulpit and the securing of woman equal participation with men in the various trades, professions, and commerce, end quote. Yet by emphasizing education and political rights that were the privileges of the upper classes, the embryonic feminist movement had little connection with ordinary women cleaning houses in Liverpool or picking cotton in Georgia. The single non-white woman's voice heard at this time, that of Sojourner Truth, a former slave, symbolized the distance between the ordinary and the elite. Her famous Ain't I a Woman speech was delivered in 1851 before the Women's Rights Convention in Akron, Ohio. But Truth did not dedicate her life to women's rights. Instead, she proclaimed abolitionism and a land distribution program for other former slaves. In the speech, Truth remarked, quote, That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches. 
and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? End quote. After the Civil War, feminists assumed that women's suffrage would be included in the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which prohibited disenfranchisement on the basis of race. Yet leading abolitionists refused to support such inclusion, which prompted Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, a temperance activist, to form the National Women's Suffrage Association in 1869. At first, they based their demand for the vote on the Enlightenment principles of natural law, regularly invoking the concept of inalienable rights granted to all Americans by the Declaration of Independence. By 1900, however, the American passion for such principles as equality had been dampened by a flood of Eastern European immigrants and the growth of urban slums. Suffragist leaders, reflecting that shift in attitude, began appealing for the vote not on the principle of justice or on the common humanity of men and women, but on race and nativist grounds. As early as 1894, Carrie Chapman Catt declared that the votes of literate, American-born, middle-class women would balance the votes of foreigners, quote, cut off the vote of the slums and give to woman the ballot, end quote. So how does all of this history lead to the transition to the second wave of feminism? Apparently, the women's movement of the 60s and 70s, the so-called second wave of feminism, represented a seemingly abrupt break with the tranquil suburban life pictured in American popular culture. Yet the roots of the new rebellion were buried in the frustrations of college-educated mothers whose discontent impelled their daughters in a new direction. If first-wave feminists were inspired by the abolition movement, their great-granddaughters were swept into feminism by the civil rights movement. The attendant discussions of principles such as equality and justice and the revolutionary ferment caused by protests against the Vietnam War. Mainstream feminist leaders such as Stanton succeeded in marginalizing more extreme demands such as Goldman's and Gilman's, but they failed to secure the vote for women. It was not until a different kind of radical, Alice Paul, reignited the women's suffrage movement in the United States by copying English activists. Like the Americans, British suffragists, led by the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, had initially approached their struggle politely, with ladylike lobbying. But in 1903, a distant faction led by Emmeline Pankhurst began a series of boycotts, bombings, and pickets. Their tactics ignited the nation, and in 1918, the British Parliament extended the vote to women householders, householders' wives, and female university graduates over the age of 30. Now we can transition to one of my other favorite sources, Wikipedia, because I do not have enough time to do deep research on the profiles of these people I want to talk about. Let's get into the profiles of some of the women who made these waves iconic. Helen Gurley Brown was an outspoken advocate of women's sexual freedom and sought to provide women with the role models in her magazine. She claimed that women could still have it all, love, sex, and money. As a result of her advocacy, glamorous, fashion-focused women were sometimes called Cosmo Girls. Her work played a part in what is often called the sexual revolution. So, if you couldn't tell already, <laughs> Helen Gurley Brown was the founder of Cosmo or Cosmopolitan. This magazine was garnered to women who were coming into their 30s, um, and younger and older too. They would talk about things like menopause, they would talk about, like, women's libido. Um, she was considered a radicalist in that she was so outspoken for women's sexual liberation, but when you think about it, that shouldn't 
be such a radical thing. So I thought she was an important person to bring up. So she was the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine for 32 years. She was born in February of 1922. She was born in Arkansas. She had a tragic childhood in that her father died when she was young in an elevator accident. And then her sister contracted polio in California when they moved. So they moved around a lot. But it seemed like she was a go-getter and she was able to make a lot of connections with the people that she would meet in these different places. That's how she met her husband in 1959, David Brown, who later became a noted film producer. (laughs) She began publishing books... She had a book published in 1962, Sex and the Single Girl. The book actually inspired the film starring Natalie Wood with the same title, which I think is very interesting. And then in 1965, she became the editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan. However, in 1997, she was ousted from her role as the U.S. editor of Cosmopolitan and was replaced by Bonnie Fuller. When she left, the newspaper ranked sixth at the newsstand and for the 16th straight year ranked first in bookstores on college campuses. However, she stayed at Hearst Publishing and remains the international editions of Cosmo until her death on August 13th, 2012. So she had a very successful life. I really appreciate how outspoken she was uh, for women's freedom of expression. I think that's a nice way to put it. (laughs) And it's not something that I feel like should not go unacknowledged. I feel like sometimes we don't take women seriously enough, especially when they get so personal with things like this. And I think creating a positive perspective just is so much healthier than hating or criticizing the opposite side for having the access to that sexual liberation because we truly are equals and we shouldn't try to tear each other down. So I thought Helen Gurley Brown, oh my god that rhymed, would be a good person to talk about. So next person. Another prominent figure during the second wave of feminism, but more towards the middle and end, is Gloria Steinem. So we're relying on good old Wikipedia again. Gloria Marie Steinem is an American journalist and social political activist who emerged as a nationally recognized leader of second wave feminism in the United States in the late 1960s and early 1970s. She was born on March 25th, 1934. Steinem was a columnist for New York Magazine and a co-founder of Miss Magazine. In 1969, Steinem published an article, After Black Power, Women's Liberation, which brought her national attention and positioned her as a feminist leader. In 1971, she co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus, which provides training and support for women who seek elected and appointed offices in government. Also in 1971, she co-founded the Women's Action Alliance, which until 1997 provided support to a network of feminist activists and worked to advance feminist causes and legislation. In the 1990s, Steinem helped establish Take Our Daughters to Work Day, an association for young girls to learn about future career opportunities. In 2005, Steinem, Jane Fonda, and Robin Morgan co-founded the Women's Media Center, an organization that works to make women visible and powerful in the media. Another important woman who was prominent in 2005 was my sister because she was born. So, (laughs) love you, Jane. As of May 2018, Steinem was traveling internationally as an organizer and lecturer and was a media spokeswoman on issues of equality. In 2015, Steinem, alongside with two Nobel Peace Prize laureates, Abigail Disney and other prominent women peace activists, 
undertook a journey from the capital of North Korea, Pyongyang, to South Korea, crossing the most heavily militarized zone in the world between the two Koreas. So she's done a lot of work. <laughs> she's worked very hard. She is still active, which is very crazy to me, but good for her. Something else that she did um, during the second wave of feminism that made her such a prominent figure was that in 1969, she covered an abortion speak out for a New York magazine, which was held in a church basement in Greenwich Village, New York. Steinem had had an abortion herself in London at the age of 22. She felt what she called a big click at the speak out, and later she said she didn't, quote, begin my life as an active feminist, end quote, until that day. As she recalled, quote, it, abortion, is supposed to make us a bad person, but I must say, I never felt that. I used to sit and try to figure out how old the child would be, trying to make myself feel guilty, but I never could. I think the person who said, honey, if men could get pregnant, abortion would be a sacrament, was right. Speaking for myself, I knew it was the first time I had taken responsibility for my own life. I wasn't going to let things happen to me. I was going to direct my life, and therefore, it felt positive, but still, I didn't tell anyone because I knew that out there, it wasn't positive, end quote. She also said, quote, In later years, if I'm remembered at all, it will be for inventing a phrase like reproductive freedom. As a phrase, it includes the freedom to have children or not to. So it makes it possible for us to make a coalition, end quote. And I might have mentioned this before, but in 1972, she co-founded the feminist magazine Miss, alongside founding editors Letty Cotton Porgbin, Mary Tom, Patricia Carbine, Joan Edgar, Nina Figgelstein, Dorothy Peatman Hughes, and Mary Peacock. It began as a special edition of New York, and Clay Felker funded the first issue. Its 300,000 test copies sold out nationwide in eight days. Within weeks, Miss had received 26,000 subscription orders and more than 20,000 reader letters. In 1974, Miss collaborated with public television to produce the television program Woman Alive, and Steinem was featured in the first episode in her role as co-founder of Miss Magazine. The magazine was sold to the Feminist Majority Foundation in 2001. Steinem remains on the masthead as one of six founding editors and serves on the advisory board. Also in 1972, Steinem became the first woman to speak at the National Press Club. I also pulled this quote from Wikipedia, the same exact article on her. It talks about her parents' divorce and how it affected her, um, and I just really like her perspective like she's not afraid to acknowledge when she knows that something isn't right um but she doesn't let that make her feel guilty and i really like that and she doesn't really hold herself accountable for this thing either so a little backstory while her parents divorced under the stress of her mother's illness steinem did not attribute it at all to male calvinism on the father's part she claims to have quote understood and never blamed him for the breakup end quote Nevertheless, the impact of these events had a formative effect on her personality. While her father, a traveling salesman, had provided much financial stability to the family, his exit aggravated their situation. Steinem concluded that her mother's inability to hold on to a job was evidence of general hostility towards working women. She also concluded that the general apathy of doctors towards her mother emerged from a similar anti-woman animus. Years later, Steinem described her mother's experience as pivotal to her understanding of social injustices. These perspectives convinced Steinem that women lacked social and political equality. So with all of that in mind, let's break down the four waves of feminism. 
So this next bit of information is from a source, pacificu.edu. It's just a magazine, um, so it's not like a scholarly article or anything, but I thought it was in a language that was relatable and kind of made sense and it was easy to break down. So the suffragette movement was first. It kind of went over the right to vote, as we mentioned earlier, and it took place during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The civil rights movement and movement regarding mistreatment of women or treating them like objects was second. It started in the 60s and moved into the 90s. And that's where Miss Helen Gurley Brown and Miss Gloria Steinem came into play. Next, the readoption by a young feminist of the very lipstick, high heels, and cleavage proudly exposed by low-cut necklines that the first two phases of the movement identified with male oppression was the third wave. This took place during the 90s and late 90s. So think about Mean Girls, um, think about all of the grungy artists that I mentioned from my last episodes. Um, definitely very Courtney Love-esque, trying to take back the hyper-feminist aesthetics and using them as a form of liberation. So lastly, the fourth wave of feminism is emerging because mostly young women and men realize that the third wave is either overly optimistic or hampered by blinders. So in that, the article kind of means that while the previous waves definitely had some benefits and provided more nuanced approaches to feminism, and potential societal ideals, the third wave still has some flaws in that it targets these gendered ideas and instead of putting more of like a healthy spin on it where it's empowering in that it's personal, the spin is still more degrading towards women in that to the most extreme extent it applauds women for acting like men. So to me, I think I identify more with the fourth wave of feminism, obviously, but <laughs> I consume a lot of media that was produced during the third wave of feminism, and I still love these pieces of media, but I admit that they have several faults. So one piece of media that I'm re-watching now is Friends. <laughs> Throughout the entire series, both the women and the guys make snarky comments about guys acting like girls. So instead of it feeling empowering for a woman to be like putting a man in their place by telling him to toughen up and act like a man instead of a girl, she's kind of calling herself out as an internalized misogynist, which I feel like is a very overused term. Um, but basically, to me, those jokes just read as Phoebe, Rachel, and Monica as having internalized misogyny when they tell the guys that they're acting like girls and that it's not a good thing. Like, especially with Chandler, they always pick on him and either call him gay, which again is like for a guy would mean having inherently feminist qualities, which is so not true in an overgeneralization, but I mean, all of this is. They'll call him gay or they'll call him a girl, which is also just so strange. And it'll be for the most like random things like 
oh my gosh, for the wedding episode, not wedding episode, for the episode after Monica and Chandler's wedding, I was so surprised by this. This is like the eighth season or whatever. Like, this is like the second to last season, maybe season seven. Monica and Chandler are preparing dinner for their friends, and Chandler wants to use their wedding plates or like their wedding china for the dinnerware. And Monica's a little iffy about it because she doesn't want anything to break and she doesn't trust her friends that they won't like scuff up her nice china wear or whatever. And then Chandler brings up the fact that he liked the other ones that he picked out and Monica was like, yeah, but that was too girly even for you or something like that. And it was because he picked out plates with pink and purple flowers, which he thought were pretty. And she picked out the ones with like the blue details that are like leaves and not flowers or something like that it's like the smallest detail the smallest joke but it stuck out to me because i was like why can't people just enjoy the things that they like and monica calling him out for that just shows that she doesn't perceive those things as just being things she also inherently attaches a gender to them which i mean again we all do but the difference between doing that as a habit because it's, you know, in our system because we live in a society or whatever. And pointing out that issue is the difference and acknowledging it and recognizing that it's wrong. I identify with Chandler and I think that he should have gotten the wedding plates that he wanted. And I bet that Monica was just jealous that his taste was better than hers for once. So (laughs) that's really all I have to say for this episode. Thank you for taking a glimpse back into history with me. Again, even though it seems like it's a given that I would identify more with the fourth wave of feminism since I grew up during its formation, I really do appreciate its transparency surrounding like feminist ideas. Feminism has grown and changed a lot throughout history, but with this new wave, it's really tried to call out all the faults of the previous periods. And that's, I think, why I identify with it the most. Not because I think, oh, I know better than everyone and I know all of the things, but I think it's just healthier for all of us to acknowledge that our history is full of flaws, but if we acknowledge them, then we can learn from them and we can all move on. So, yeah, take that as you will, but if it's, you know, if it comes to be your wedding day, and your wife tells you or your husband tells you not to pick out the frilly plates because they are too girly, um, then tell them that they're not loving you for the person that you are. And why are you getting married in the first place then? Don't do that. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for tuning in to episode three of Think Pink. I have been your host, Ellie Cooper. I look forward to Thinking Pink with all of you next time. Next time I will have a host. Um, I plan on either talking about another musical artist or maybe talking about whatever my guest wants to talk about if I give them enough warning. Um, So have a great rest of your day and listen to some of my fellow podcasters on Apple Music or SoundCloud. Just look up HCB Studios. And if you go to the library section, you can find all of the episodes that have been uploaded from a whole bunch of different students. 
There's another one on there from Fiona, um, Keeping It Real. She talks about a whole bunch of movies that she's never seen before. And I think the last one she did was something like Almost Famous. I could be wrong, don't quote me on that. Um, but I think it was that and I was so shocked because I was like, how do you not know the Penny Lane quote? It's Penny Lane. So yeah, go check her out. She's super cool. And yeah, I think that's all I have for you. So thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye.